Hello and welcome back to Cover to Cover, where we're talking about Shakespeare's play Macbeth, this time in relation to the 2015 film version of the play directed by Justin Curzel. The film has a marvellous cast. Michael Fassbender and Marion Cotillard in the two principal roles. Paddy Considine is an excellent Banquo and Sean Harris is outstanding in the role of Macduff. I'm always intrigued when I watch a film version of a Shakespeare play to see how the director has interpreted the play, what aspects they choose to foreground, what bits they leave out, how they make the play resonate with our time and our preoccupations. For me, Cazelle's film is an amazingly powerful visual experience. The scenes of violence, a wash in fear and Cruelty are astonishing. The witches are brilliant, very relatable, very much victims, it seems to me, who help express the link between the loss of loved ones and despair. Then there is the unforgettable reaction of Macduff to the news of the killing of his family. And of course, there is the physical landscape. For a person like me, with so many Shakespeare lines buzzing in my brain, the main regret is that the poetry of Shakespeare's play does not survive so well in this visual landscape. And this is partly because a director chooses to make much of it inaudible. But before talking about the other aspects... Let's talk about the landscape. The film was shot on location in England and Scotland, and the landscape is a powerful presence, particularly in the first half of the film. It's a huge granity, sinewy landscape, cold, starkly beautiful but forbidding hostile, a landscape with very little vegetation, a landscape of moorland and tundra where icy torrents run down the flanks of granite mountains. There is snow and mist. This is a pre-climate warming landscape. It's harsh it's wintry, it towers over the human figures. And one can well imagine that in the absence of religion, and neither Macbeth nor his wife have any interest in religion, establishing and sustaining meaning in such a landscape is no easy task. In this harsh landscape, people are scarred and they are grimed. Throughout the whole film, the male 
actors never seem to be scrubbed clean. There's always grime on hands and faces, and almost everyone carries a scar, Macduff spectacularly so. This, after all, is the 12th century or thereabouts. At the beginning of the film, there is an extraordinary battle scene. We see a bunch of tired soldiers hunkered down on the moors, strapping on their weapons, waiting for yet another battle, painting their faces with vertical black stripes to look more fearsome, tholing the cold and the fatigue as best they can. Led by their captains, Macbeth and Banquo, these soldiers have been fighting for weeks. They are tired. Their forces are depleted. But now King Duncan has sent them his last reserves. He sent them these last troops to plug the gaps, to staunch the holes. But these reserves are just lads, 16, 17, 18 years of age. They are completely out of their depth, many of them just boys, physically quite slight. In the last episode, we spoke about the climate of fear and suspicion that prevailed in England following the gunpowder plot. Well, these young lads are scared, ill-equipped to make common cause with the older, battle-hardened types like Macbeth and Banquo. As the battle against the forces of MacDonald rages, the camera picks out some spectators off to the side, looking on impassively. They are the weird sisters. Note that in his play, Shakespeare never actually calls these women witches. He calls them the weird sisters. This word weird is a word I've always loved. It's a word with a long history. It entered English through German and Old Norse, and its meaning is connected with fate and the cruelty of fate. In modern English, we use the word weird differently. It it still has an edge. It means bizarre in a slightly unsettling way. Hey, man, stop acting weird. Something like that. But the original meaning of the word weird was different. It meant fate and, by extension, the cruelty and the unknowability of fate. There is a superb Old English poem written over a thousand years ago, i.e. in a time much closer to the world of Macbeth than to our own time. And that poem is called The Wanderer. In it, a man, a wanderer, looks back on his life. The tone is sad and mournful. He looks back at the griefs and hurts and the moments of cheer that have peopled his life. Allow me to quote a couple of lines. 
No weary mind may stand against weird, nor may erect will work new hope. The weird sisters in Curzel's film are channelers of fate. They are manipulators of fate, but they are also victims of fate. Two of them are in their 20s, the other perhaps in her early 40s. They are accompanied by a child and a baby. They appear to have no home, no hearth, no family apart from each other. They emerge from the mist and disappear back into the mist. These weird sisters connect to the world of King James in several ways. In Act 1, Scene 3 of Shakespeare's play, one of the witches boasts about how she pursued a sailor on a ship called the Tiger because the sailor's wife had insulted her. Now, this is directly connected to the events of King James's life. In 1590, Princess Anne of Denmark, who was then only 15 years old and who was engaged to be married to King James, set out to sail from Denmark to Scotland. But the ships carrying her and her party had to turn back because of violent storms. King James, in what has been described as the only romantic episode of his life, set off by ship to find her, comfort her and escort her to Scotland. Once again, violent storms blew up, forcing the ships to take shelter in port. It was then that claims emerged that these storms had been stirred up by witches. And indeed, an insult to an official's wife was part and parcels of the various rumours and accusations, much like the way the first witch takes umbrage in Act 1, Scene 3 of Shakespeare's play. The upshot was that in Denmark in July 1590, a number of women accused of being witches were put on trial and two of them subsequently burned at the stake. These trials prompted James to launch his own investigations in Scotland. And these investigations are recorded in the history books as the North Berwick Witch Trials. Again, various people, almost all women, were accused of sorcery and witchcraft. They were interrogated, tortured and many of them were killed. To give us a sense of the scale of this issue, 
One scholar estimates that in the years from 1560 to 1707, somewhere between 3,000 and 4,000 women accused of being witches may have been put to death in Scotland. Now that's 25 a year or two per month. Sobering stuff. So, from a point of view that would make total sense to King James and indeed to his audience, Shakespeare's weird sisters foment evil. They have connections to ships and storms and vindictive behavior. They send devils up the masts of ships. They whisper in men's ears They encourage people in their secret and shameful desires. They drive them to evil deeds. In Macbeth's uneasy mind, they have discerned a dream of regicide, or to put it in James's own words in that book, Demonology, that we referred to in the previous episode, they have spied his affections. And so they distill the prophecy that percolates into his mind like a poison and prompts him and his wife to commit murder. But the witches in Curzel's film are quite different and indeed eminently relatable for a modern audience. They are not evil, but rather forlorn observers, forlorn prophets, women who have been lacerated by life. At one point, the oldest of them approaches Macbeth in a sexual manner, perhaps to accentuate the fact that she and her comrades are trying to wet his desire, his desire for kingship. But it seems to me that she is also expressing desires of her own that have been left to wither on the vine. These women are social outcasts, a sad sisterhood, women who have felt the unforgiving force of weird, of fate. And indeed, as the film goes on, we begin to perceive that Lady Macbeth could easily join their band. These women connect grief and sadness with revenge. They connect grief with withdrawal from society and from social norms. They have fallen through the cracks. Society no longer has a place for them. They have nothing left to lose. Certainly for me, watching the film, the emotions I mainly felt for them were curiosity and sympathy or empathy. And empathy all the stronger because they are so young and they have a child and an infant. 
The Weird Sisters are present in the opening scene of Curzel's film, another key moment, where we see the Macbeths outside on the frozen moorland, burying their child. Why did their son die? The cause of his death is not clear in that first scene. But when we see the boy again later on in a scene imagined by Lady Macbeth, we see on his face and neck the sores and pustules of bubonic plague. In other words, right from the outset, the hand of disease and of weird lurks in this wide, unforgiving landscape. And indeed, it is historically accurate to point out that the victims of bubonic plague, which ravaged England in Shakespeare's time, were, unlike the victims of COVID, for example, mainly young people. In this opening scene, the grief of the parents is as heavy as lead. It is winter, the ground is too hard to dig, the child's body will be burnt on a funeral pyre, but first he is laid on a bed of heather. Lady Macbeth puts some earth and a flower into the dead boy's hands. Macbeth places stones on his eyelids. What does overwhelming grief at the loss of a child, one's only child, do to a person? No weary mind may stand against weird, nor may erect will work new hope. Has the loss of her child wrecked all hope for Lady Macbeth? Has it wrecked her will? Has the hurt penetrated to the core of her relationship with her husband, poisoning their pleasure in each other, poisoning their feelings, turning their hopes and ambitions into crueler channels. There is another passage in that marvellous poem, The Wanderer, where the lonely man whose sleep is racked with sorrow and bad dreams wakes up and we get these lines. Awakeneth after this friendless man seeth before him fallow waves, seabirds bathing, broading out feathers, snow and hail swirl, hoarfrost falling. Then all the heavier his heart's wounds sore for his loved Lord. Sorrow freshens. Right from the opening frames, Lady Macbeth's heart, like those of the Weird Sisters, is heavy with heart's wounds saw for her loved son. And indeed, at the time the film was shot, 
The actress Marion Cotillard was about 38 years old. So for me as a viewer, it was clear that Lady Macbeth had had her child late and that almost certainly her childbearing days are over. And as the film goes on, infertility and loss will empty her and twist her and twist her husband who becomes obsessed with the fact that it is Banquo who will father a line of kings, not them. He and his wife have defiled their minds for Banquo. Suffice it to say that Curzel makes the lost child a key motif in this extraordinary film. Join us in the next episode as we continue our exploration. (laughs) ¶¶